Well, hey, welcome. I'm Jack. In case we haven't met, I'm Bethany Northeast lead pastor, and um, it's good to be in this uh, time of worship together. And it's our third Sunday of Advent, and um, we're kind of the last couple of weeks uh, looked at the character of Mary, and, and and if you were at another location at Bethany's, hey, you wouldn't be hearing about Mary. I just felt, man, there's so much more in her story than I've ever um, taken time to study, and so just wanted to continue that. And so today we're looking at the next chapter in Mary's story, which is called the Magnificat. Uh, this week I was turned on to a, a website, a, an app called Radio Garden by Susan Heller Evanson, who's over here. It was part of their Christmas letter, and so I told Susan just right before the service I was going to do this, so thank you for being willing to let me, because this is my whole intro. So um, it's this app, it's a website that's like kind of Google Earth Radio Garden, so look it up after the service, but it's, it's a Google Earth kind of globe that's populated with all these, um, like about 30,000 little green dots. How many of you guys have seen this? So there's a few. Um, and each dot represents an actual radio station somewhere in the world. Um, and you can literally tune in to what other people around the world are tuning into real time. So you can imagine someone in Africa or in Southeast Asia or in Europe is listening to a radio station that you're now listening to almost alongside them. Thousands and thousands of stations around the world. And like Susan, I was immediately engrossed in this. I got to listen to my favorite Afropop radio station that I used to listen to back when I was living in Kenya. And I had a little, just a little radio, like, remember those? And so that's what I listened to. And I was introduced to the Ukrainian underground music scene in Kiev. Never really had that much interest in it, but got to listen to that. I even got to tune into a, a radio station in Inverness, Scotland, <clears throat> that played uh, old and new Scottish roots music, as I'm anticipating a, a trip there this summer with my family. And so, uh, couldn't understand what they're saying, but that, <laughs> I had to get used to it, right? So, um, and it's this fascinating project for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is it reveals that the world of music is at least as large as the world in which we live, but also, in the words of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, that the universal language of the human soul is music. This is the language that we share, music. Um, and I bring this up because Christmas is a season, if if any season of the year is a season of about music, it's about music. You know a Christmas song when you hear it. And if it's too soon, like you're in the mall or Target, you know, just you bristle because like, ah, it's not the right time of year for this. Um, and we all have a different reference point for that. Some it's, yeah, we won't go into that, but that's, that's personal preference. Uh, so there were actually, when I did a quick search on Radio Garden, no less than 20 dedicated Christmas radio stations. I was shocked that there weren't more, but 20 dedicated Christmas radio stations globally, range from Ireland to the Philippines to Australia to Italy. My favorite was this one in, in Berlin, which is called, and I don't know if you found this, Susan, because you probably didn't look it up because it was just almost infuriating, but called 80s 80s Christmas, which is a station that literally streams 80s Christmas pop 24-7, 365. Depeche Mode, Eurythmics, Wham, Pet Shop Boys, you name it, right? It's all there. I didn't know these bands had actually done Christmas music, but I guess if Mariah Carey can, they can, so there you go. Um, so that's it. We all have a favorite Christmas song, don't we? Like, one that when you hear it, it just, it just sets the mood, right? It sets the mood for the year. It's probably not the Depeche Mode song. Uh, maybe it is, and if it is for you, then 
God bless you. But um, it could be Silent Night. It could be Jingle Bells. It could be Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. I don't know. And so it, there's at least one song for us that when you hear it in your house or in church on Sunday during Advent or whatever, you just feel like Christmas has just started. So which is that for you? I Just a quick poll of our crowd here, or our congregation here. Which, just yell it out. What's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, Holy Night. Oh, Holy Night. That's a tough one to sing, but just taking notes. Andrew's not here today, but taking notes, mental notes. Oh, night. Silent Night. Silent Night. We, we probably usually save that for Christmas Eve, so you got to come, because we like candles. I was telling the Schmitz, we usually light the candles here with that. Oh, come on, come on, man. We sang that this morning. What a beautiful song that sets the tone. Is there another one? Nobody's saying Jingle Bells? <laughs> of course. Tennessee Christmas. Tennessee Christmas. See? Come on. I will talk about that one later. I'd never heard of it. So, <laughs> so awesome, actually. And those are all good songs. All of them. Um, but did you know, now this is just objectively and scientifically speaking now, do you know what the most important or the most universally loved, the most popular Christmas song of all time is? Uh, yeah, none of those. Those are like, Rudolph? Who said Rudolph? That's good. I mean, that's a good guess. Worldwide, all time, it's, it's none of those. Those are all good songs. It's actually the Magnificat, this text that we just heard read. This is the song that has been translated into over 2,000 languages. Um, it's been played by, with drums and dancing on the plains of Africa. It's been chanted in Orthodox monasteries, in smaller villages in Siberia and in Russia. It was even composed for an orchestra by Bach. So this song... Over 2,000 years old now, sung from the heart, if you think of it. This isn't a song that Mary read somewhere. She, this is coming from within her. Uh, is the most known, played, treasured Christmas song of all time, perhaps in the history of the world. We typically don't sing it in our gatherings, um, and there's reasons for that, and I'll get into those later. Um, but it's this song's passionate, wild, pervasive impact, it's because of that, and I just want to, what I want to do with you this morning is study it a little bit um, more deeply and kind of ask, because it usually gets, if it gets any <laughs> attention in evangelical settings like ours, um, it gets a passing glance, you know? And, and so I want to ask, like, more deeply, what, ex- what kind of experience did Mary have that provoked such a song, right? Such a beautiful song. What's this song about? Talk about that. And then talk a little bit about um, how we can sing like Mary. We may not sing her exact words or need to. Tennessee Christmas could be fine, but like, how can we learn to, even when we sing those songs, learn to sing with the passion that Mary sang with? Um, and so that's the structure of our study this morning. What caused Mary to sing? What's her song about? And then how can we learn to sing like Mary? Okay? So first... What caused Mary to sing? Uh, we first, what we first need to do is to look at the things that happened to Mary that provoked her singing. Um, there's a context, if you will, to Mary's song. And, and the first thing we look at, we notice, is that if you look at verses 39 to 45, that Mary is, uh, visits her cousin Elizabeth. This is called the visitation. So you have, you know, the Annunciation, the visitation, the Magnificat, all these Latin kind of phrases. Um, and so just picture this. In, in, in chapter 1, we studied this last Sunday. If you weren't here, you can go back to it, uh, of Luke, in verses 26 to 38. Mary's been visited by an angel. 
this angel, this, this account details this vision of who her son will be, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, she's out of, she's pray, she's pregnant, she's not married. Her and Joseph have not been sexually active. She hears that her son's going to be Israel's saving king. And so she's shocked. And that's putting it mildly. She is, her head is spinning. It's just a lot to take in. And so look what she does. Verse 39, she goes with haste, that's the word the NRSV uses, uh, to visit her cousin Elizabeth's home in the hill country of Judea. So she has to travel quite a distance, in, in, which is to say she runs. <laughs> she doesn't text or email. If that was even an option, it wasn't. But she doesn't post something to social media. Like, she doesn't, she goes with haste. She drops everything she's doing and with great urgency goes to see Elizabeth, to talk face-to-face with Elizabeth and to spend some time in Elizabeth's presence where Elizabeth could be sort of a a sounding board, if you will, to this information, this encounter, this experience that she's had. Which is generally what we do, or we at least used to do prior to COVID or maybe prior to social media. When something happens, something big, like when we got the big news, you know, it could be good news, a promotion, a raise, you're accepted into college, uh, you find out you're pregnant. Or not good, you know, you discover that you have a tumor, or you're laid off from work, or a relationship is now going off the rails. When something monumental happens in our life, our life, we at least used to have a need, a primal, almost a primal need, to go and talk about it with someone, with a trusted friend. Like we need to share that experience. Share the, and share the affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, share the affect of that experience. Um, if this makes sense. It could be a spouse, it could be a roommate, it could just be a dear friend. We have this need to be in the presence of another when something big happens in our lives. What's more, uh, look at how Elizabeth responds to Mary, verse 41. It says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, this child in her womb leaped, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So do you see this? There's not resentment. <laughs> like Elizabeth doesn't say, um, I wish you'd, I wish you hadn't dropped that on me. I wish you'd, I wish you'd let me know you were coming <laughs> so I could prepare the house. I, 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 you get the Messiah. I only get John the Baptist. Like there's not bitterness. There's not irritation. She's just full of joy and she's full of praise. Like she focuses her eyes so much on the goodness of God and the goodness of Mary actually. So much so that she's filled with the presence of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God, to bless Mary, if you see this in her, in her response. And so it's, why this is so interesting to me is that it's only after that exchange between Mary and Elizabeth that Mary begins to sing. Did you notice that? The song comes after. She begins to sing the song that we have now after she encounters Elizabeth. In other words, she doesn't sing in her quiet time, she doesn't sing on the road as she's coming or going. She only begins to sing after she connects with a dear sister in the Lord. The Magnificat, this, this song of great consequence in the history of our world, hear this, is a product of Christian community. That's where it came from. Two women filled with the Spirit connecting their hearts. And so... You know, what we see here and what God's giving us here in each other, the body of Christ, is that to more richly and deeply experience the grace and mercy and love of God, we, 
that, that, so that we might understand God more fully and experience God more fully, we, we, have to, we need community to be able to do that. Um, we emphasize, and we have done this at Bethany for as long as I've been here and probably years before, um, our individual relationship to God. And that's important. But I need, to, I need to say that our shared relationship to God, how we share a relationship with God, is no less important. It might be more important in some ways. Um, and in particular, we need to be in community with people very different than ourselves. Look at this. Look how different these women are from each other. I don't think we often think of their differences. One is young. The other, the text tells us, is, is much older. One is single. The other has been married for a long time. One is poor. One is pretty well established. One's on the margins. One's at the center of religious power. One has gotten, they've both gotten the shocking news of being pregnant. One, for one, it just seems way too soon. For the other, it seems like it was too late. So do you see these differences between these women? Artists probably don't paint those differences, probably because of the context they usually paint them from. Um, but these differences speak to how the church, what, what the church and how the church and, and what the church should look like, must look like. People only God could bring together into, in ways that, in God's timing, in God's community. Um, generations, life stages, social groups, and then beyond that, vastly different musical preferences. <laughs> Very different, disparate political affiliations. Theological variety. You know, if we talk about seven days of creation, if we talk about heaven and hell, if we talk about definition of marriage in this room, if we did that right now, I'd get a vast number of opinions. Theological variety. Ethnic diversity. Friends, it's only when we know God in that kind of a community, knowing lots of other Christ followers from lots of other backgrounds who express God in lots of other ways, different from my way of encountering and expressing God, that we'll come to know God more fully. There's no way you or I will ever know God completely by ourselves. Which is why I just want to challenge us. I know there's this Omicron variant. I know there's a real struggle right now. We have to, we have to press through and in, we have to find ways to encounter each other like Mary and Elizabeth encountered each other. They're in the, they're in the context of an oppressive Roman state. It's different for us now, yes. In some ways it's not that different. We have to get creative. In this community and then beyond this community, asking ourselves, how can I share my life with people different than myself? We have to fight for community. Because we're built for it. We are built for community, which, which means, like Mary and Elizabeth, we have to, like I said, we have to get creative. I shared this a couple weeks ago in a message I gave at the end of our One Another series, this idea of communing together in one another's garages. Who would have thunk uh, a year and a half ago or so that this would be a, a sermon topic? But it is. I mean, I, I was able to do this this week with our local advisory team. A few of our members of that team are here in the garage of one of the members of our community, uh, Margie Tessier, because we felt like that was the right thing to do, honoring where we're at with COVID, and because we're committed to community. Uh, last year, we met on Zoom. We'd, every December, our, our local advisor team, instead of planning for business, gets together for a meal. Previous year, some of you have been part of that. We go out to a restaurant. It's really great. And last year, we just Zoomed. And I said, this year, we need to be together. 
And so we met in Margie's garage with TV trays. <laughs> not optimal, you know, not optimal. It was cold. <laughs> and Margie made it feel as festive as possible. But it was life-giving and enriching, friends. And you hear, the more we commit to community, to sharing our experience of Christ with others, the more we're going to experience the riches of Christ. Um, and the more you're going to find yourself singing. That's just what's going to happen. Um, so that's number one. That's what caused Mary's song. Here's number two, what the song's about. I just want to focus on two aspects of it, and this will kind of land the plane. There's two aspects to this song that are really um, aspects of the gospel. Really, She's really articulating the gospel, the whole gospel. The first is incarnation. The second is liberation. That's what her song's really about in a nutshell. So let's talk about those real quick. Incarnation in verses 46 to 49, liberation 51 to 55, okay? So first incarnation. Look at verse 46 to 48. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is part of the song you know. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. So what this is, is Mary responding to the experience of being seen, which is really what the incarnation is all about. Seeing like seeing God. John 1.14 says this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Thus we've seen the glory, his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The, the literal translation of what Mary sings here in verse 48, when she says, for he's looked on me with favor, is that he's known me. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's known me. Hmm. God knows me. He looked at me, not just with a passing glance. He looked right through me. You can kind of picture the woman at the well here with Jesus later in the story. He didn't just notice me. He paid attention to me. God sees me. God understands me. God recognizes me. And in recognizing me, God appreciates me. And God believes in me. I mean, if you thought of that, we often focus on the, and emphasize the, our faith in God. What it looks like to put our, our faith in Jesus, you know, as Lord and Savior, living a life of faith. But what about God's faith in us? God's desire to seek us out, understand us, appreciate us as creations of his own hand, as God's desire to recognize us as unique image bearers. You know, if you've been around Bethany Northeast for long, you know, probably, that one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Hagar. Uh, maybe you haven't heard me talk about this before, but she's, when we heard in the story of Genesis, uh, she's a slave of Sarah, Sarai and Abram before they have their kind of names changed, which is a significant moment in their story. This is before they have their son Isaac, before God renames them. <clears throat> so in this chapter of their lives, they've kind of conspired to impregnate Hagar, who is the slave of theirs, to bear them this son, who becomes Ishmael, so they can fulfill this promise that God gave them, okay? Uh, I know that's an uncharitable way of looking at it, but that's a little bit of a way of looking at it. So his name Ish becomes Ishmael, but tragically in the story, what we find is that this is not good news for Hagar, that she's pregnant. Um, it's not good news for Abram and Sarai, actually, and so they cast her out of her, their home. They beat her, cast her out. We find her alone in Genesis 16, on her own, wandering in the wilderness, pregnant, vulnerable, exhausted, and afraid. Just to kind of picture this. And there's God seeking her out. 
It's one of the most moving chapters in the entire Bible. Here's how the story goes. An angel of the Lord, see if you can kind of hear reverberations of Mary and Elizabeth's story here. An angel of the Lord visits Hagar and says to Hagar, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone, and he will live at odds with all your kin. Some of you have young sons like this. Uh, It's an odd sort of blessing, and one that's perhaps another sermon for another day. But Hagar, like Mary, is perplexed and overjoyed. And so she responds with this declaration in Genesis 16, 13, God, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. For I have now seen the God who sees me. She's the first person, I don't know if you knew this, the first person in the entire Bible to give God a personal name. And that name is the God who sees. The God who understands my affliction. The God who recognizes my vulnerability and fear. The God who appreciates my personhood, my beauty, and my strength. God might have been the first person who appreciated her personhood. Who believes in me? Who believes my story? Uh, who doesn't discount my story? Who believes in who I am and that I, what I am, it has value? Uh, God sees us like that. That's really what Christmas and Advent are intended to be about, being seen. Us seeing God in the flesh, and then us being seen by God in the flesh, in all the flesh that we bring. Which all to say is really hard. It's, it's hard to be seen. If you've ever been seen by somebody, truly seen, when you've had an encounter with somebody, they looked you in the eye. Maybe this is your wedding day. Maybe this is a painful moment with your spouse. Maybe this is one of your kids. They look at you and you know, man, they see me now. Not as you wish you were, not as you think you are, but just as you are. That's a hard moment. Scott Erickson, whose book we've been kind of tracing through this sermon series, we're using as sort of a companion text for this series. Uh, the book's called Honest Advent. He has a chapter in the book called Seen, and I'd encourage you to read it. And this is what he says, a little excerpt from the chapter. He says, because he says it way better than I ever could, he, says, he asks, why is being seen so hard? It's hard because when you decide to live into your true self, your strengths and your weaknesses, your light and your shadow, your superpowers and your kryptonites, you're revealing yourself to the world and you can now be touched. You can be loved, you can be rejected, you can be embraced, and you can be ignored, and all the other complicated interactions that come with being human. This is the exciting, he says, and terrifying proposal of an everyday life. So that some of us, some of us are questioning whether revealing yourself is worth it. Now that's good. Being seen as we are, not as we wish we were or as we think we are, is terrifying, he says. And so some of us are really apprehensive about it. We don't know if we really want to be seen as we face people in this community. We've been hurt. We've been rejected. Maybe people in your family. Maybe people in your neighborhood. Maybe people at work. You've been ignored. You've been left out. Our stories have, some of us, our stories have been invalidated. We share a story and somebody's questioned that. They've gaslighted. They've Wondered, well, I don't know if I see it that way. We might face that with, like I said, a spouse or a loved one. Uh, misunderstanding, unforgiveness, unrequited love. We might even experience that with God. Some of us, like, we hear of God's love, 
But we've never had an experience of that. We hear, maybe you hear me talking about God every week. You don't know what an encounter with God like that looks like. <laughs> um, and you're not sure you want to trust God. Which is why I love how Scott the painter goes on to say this. He says, what we see in the Chronicle about Jesus is that being seen was complicated for him too. His incarnation was not void of hardship and heartbreak. He was misunderstood. His family was skeptical about his new vocation. His cultural spiritual leadership thought he was a spawn of Satan. He even had a friend who sold him out because he stopped believing the hype. And then he goes, he finishes this way. He says, if Jesus' incarnation had been fueled by the belief that love is something that you have to earn, these failures of earning love through approval for Jesus would have been devastating to the spiritual life that he was committed to living. So what we see in Jesus is a spirituality that is instead grounded in the never-ending spring of love that was a source of everything he did. It was a source that enabled him to forgive the haters, the source that emboldened him to meet others in their pain, the source that ignited him to speak with hope in a culture desperate for a new way. It was a source that empowered him to lay his own life down for those that he loved, even those that hated him. So may it be known that the giver of existence took the same risk we all have to take in every day, to be seen and known as the people we really are. God's taken that risk. That's what Advent and Christmas teach us. To be seen. And God is inviting us to take that risk, to be seen by one another as the people we really are. And, and learn to practice that seeing in our community and lean into that practice of seeing one another. And in being seen, then declaring, like Elizabeth declared to Elizabeth, you are beloved. You're a child of God. There's beauty in you. Bear witness to that in each other. So that's the, that's the first thing from our song that we learn is God is the God who sees us and calls us uh, into seeing each other in new and life-giving ways. The second, and I'll finish with this, is the reality of liberation in this song. So Mary's singing is not just about what God's done for her personally, it's, and that's good, or her individually, that's also good. Um, it's about what God's doing for the world. And, and you probably heard this. Look at verse 54 real quick, at the very end of the song, where she sings, He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, and here's Abraham again, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So 2,000 years before Mary lived, God had made a promise. This is, you know, in that complex story I narrated to Abraham, that one day out of his family would come a son, a seed, a chosen one, one who would restore the nations, who would bring blessing back to earth, which is just another way of saying that in the face of a world shattered and broken by sin, and there was sin in Abraham and Sarah's life. There's sin in all of our lives. In, in, in the face of a world shattered by that, God says, I will not let the world fall away. I will not let you fall away. I will reclaim. I will renew. I will restore this world. That's what God is about. And, and so God's people have been waiting for the reclamation of the world to begin for generations. Uh, they've been waiting for this Messiah. Mary and her generation, like I said, have been suffering under the domination of the Roman Empire. And then Mary begins to sing because she hears from this angel that, oh, it's begun. It's beginning. Reclamation, restoration are beginning. God's not forgotten his promise or his people or the world. God is on the move. God is fulfilling this. Evil will not win. Evil will not win. That's what she's singing about, liberation. 
So it's a story of incarnation, but the key here is that in every incarnation story, if it's the story of God, is a story of liberation. Incarnation and liberation always go together. Um, look at verses 51 and 53. He scattered the proud. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones. He's lifted those up at the bottom. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. This is a liberation story. You know, I mentioned that uh, artist Scott Erickson, Scott the painter, earlier. Another artist who's really challenging me to think differently about Mary and about this story is an artist named Ben Wildflower. Go ahead and put this portrait up. He's an artist from the East Coast and had grown up an evangelical and he grew up reading the Bible over and over and over again, as many of you did. Going to church every Sunday, attending church camps and church retreats and conferences and all of it. Um, I even heard from some of you during one of those series that you attended church multiple times a week. <laughs> so that's strange. But uh, that's, that's what this guy did. And yet, in all of that, church attending and church going and Bible reading, he never heard the, st- the Song of Mary emphasized in church until... He left his evangelical church and started attending an Anglican church much later in his life. And it was there that the Magnificat was part of this liturgy, evening prayer liturgy during Advent, and he founded this beautiful and profound articulation of the gospel. And so I guess as artists do, one day he's walking home and walks by a construction site and finds an old piece of wood, picks it up, and this is a woodcut that he did. And he crafted this image of Mary and he used some of the words from her song. And you can see he has her fist raised to the sky and her foot stepping on this snake. It's, it's, it's an unambiguous, revolutionary image, right? And he painted it, and here's what he says about it, why he painted it this way. He said, there's enough images of Mary out there focusing on her loneliness and meekness. I wanted to make one that highlighted her holy rage, <laughs> and her indictment of an economic system that was built on idolatrous ideas of what kind of people do or don't deserve things like food and shelter. I like that, Mary. A young woman singing a song about toppling rules from the rulers from their thrones, a radical who exists within the confines of institutionalized religion, the tangible, physical earthiness of the gospel disrupting our business as usual. Have you thought of Mary like that? Someone who's out here to disrupt business as usual. We have business as usual in Advent, in church, Christmas. There's a lot of business as usual. And what God, I think, wants to do during at least this Advent or during our Advent is disrupt that a bit. Which might simply mean with God disrupting the trappings of your Christmas season and the overcrowded decorating and gift-giving and party-going and baking and eggnogging and all the music we like to hear, even if with just a whisper, to say, I see you. To slow down just enough to say, I see you. And in seeing you, I delight in you and I value you. And as you are, not as you wish you were, not as you think you are, just you. I see you. And what's more, God might be whispering a call to you that you are empowered now with the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Mary, to see others not as they wish they were, not as they think they are, but just as they are. Beautiful and mysterious, bearers of the sacred and holy image of God. See, God's about disrupting business as usual, not maintaining a status quo. God's never been about that. So here's the question to finish with. How might this message of this song of Mary be good news 
not just to us, but to our neighbors. How is this good news to our neighbors? In particular, neighbors that might not be in this room with us. Maybe it's those in your life, maybe those in your physical neighborhood, those who would never, ever dare to join this gathering, but who are still, nonetheless, beloved of God. That's the question this text challenges us with and challenges us to respond to. I mentioned I want to, I want to sing like Mary. How are we going to sing like Mary? Prophetically, incarnationally, transformatively, generously, with, with people in our lives, with our whole lives. It might not be an actual song. It might just be with a way of being with others. And so that said, I'll invite the Davises back up now. And I think we want to invite you to ponder the question, how, how can I, how might this be good news to my neighbors, my neighborhood? By just pressing into the way Mary sang. We're not going to sing the Magnificat, per se. Uh, we talked about it, the three of us, as we planned this week. And um, we thought it might be good to, to sing some songs you might have some familiarity with, so you can sing. Um, and yet, like Mary's song, some songs that invite us uh, to respond in a different way. Um, to, to capture this vision, so not Jingle Bells, not Rudolph, none of that. Those are good songs. Go, go with God and sing them, but, but other songs that invite us to see, to delight, to reclaim the world in which we live for God. And so the two we, we want to sing right now are some, the songs you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Joy to the World, but some that you might not have thought about in, these, in this frame as pressing into this idea of God as a God of incarnation and a God of revolution. So I'll invite you to do that, to re, as you sing, to reimagine your life, reimagine our world, as Mary reimagined her life in this world. Not as something lost, not as something part of a distant past, but this vehicle. Christmas is a vehicle for a newly ordered present, that we might get a picture of how God sees us, sees the world, and sing with joy for that. Okay? So let me invite you to pray with me, and then we'll invite you to stand and sing. God, we thank you for the richness of song. Um, You've given us uh, lungs and hearts and vocal cords to sing, that we don't just speak, um, but we actually get to make music. What a gift that is, God. Thank you that Mary made music in response to what must have been difficult news, but that she was able to see, God, how that was also good news. Um, and so where we're at in that guy, whether, whether it's difficult or good, or maybe it's both, God, it, it's often both. Um, would you give us the, the heart of Mary, the heart of Jesus, to sing with hope now, and to leave here singing, God, with hope as we move into the rest of Advent and the things that we need to do, uh, the relationships that we, you know, we want to be a part of, our families and friendships, God. Help us to press into those, Lord, with a new sense of your presence in them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.